Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Hey, Tom. Hey, Jay. How are you? I'm good. Um, hey, you've, you've heard of the Socratic method before, right? Um, if I said yes, would you explain it anyway? Pro- uh, probably, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> often, yes. of course. Yeah, yeah. what right. do you mean by it, though? Well, it's, it's something that if you, you know, I know you didn't go to law school, but anyone yeah. who did uh, is, is sort of has nightmares about first year law school classes. Socratic method is basically where law professors just cold call on students and, Oof. you know, your, your assignment in like whatever real property class was to read, um, you know, 30 pages of case law from like the 1700s or something like that. And then they ask you like, what happened in, you know, whatever case, and you're supposed to know it in any event. So you're, you're sort of slinking down in your seat hiding. So we, uh, reason sounds I, like say something, that, I was just going to say, it sounds like something Socrates would pull. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, I was a good, you drew that connection really well. Tom. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the reason I say that is because, um, you know, we have a law professor on the show today. And so it made me think a little bit about that, but I know, cause I was on his podcast that he's not going to spring any Socratic method questions on us. We're going to do the questions today. So, Perfect. um, yeah. So we're thrilled to have Jonah Perlin here, um, who many of our listeners will know from, from LinkedIn, or uh, there'll be listeners of his podcast, which we're going to talk a bit about today. But Jonah, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Jay and Tom. And I promise uh, I will not spring any uh, Socratic method questions on you while we while we chat. But uh, yeah, I'm super grateful to be here. Thanks for asking me to come on. Yeah, no, I love it. Um, so I wanted to just we're going to get to I wanted to get to your your background and kind of how you got to where you're at now a little bit, but I also wanted to just maybe dive right in and, and talk a little bit about your podcast. Um, just since I raised that, uh, it's really cool. Uh, I especially, you know, I kind of went back through, I think you're, I think you've got 57 episodes live now. Um, and you have some amazing guests. Uh, I was looking through it. I mean, just an eclectic mix of, of lawyers and, you know, former legislators and Russ Feingold. Um, you wow. just did an episode with John Quinn of mm-hmm. Quinn Emanuel, which is pretty awesome. Um, you know, Kirkland partners. How do you, how do you book your guests? Like you, I mean, it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, being a, being a legal oriented podcast, I'm just curious as to like, who do you know all these people? Or are they reaching out to you? <laughs> sure. It's a great question. So I started the podcast, um, right around the first of the year, January 1, 2021. Um, as we all remember, right, we're coming out of, at that point, we're still sort of in the thick of the pandemic. I mean, we're still slowly coming out of it, but um, I was talking to a lot of law students, uh, which I do a lot of, talking to a lot of junior lawyers, former students. And one of the things that they were all missing was this ability to sort of get to know about our profession by talking to other lawyers. That's kind of fundamental to, I mean, I wrote a tweet thread about this right after the end of the first year. And I, it starts with law as a profession of passed down wisdom. That's really how we teach how to do our craft um, and what you can do in the law. I mean, you mentioned it was kind of an eclectic group of people. You can do a lot of things as a lawyer, and that's both a benefit and a challenge. The benefit is you can do a lot of things. The challenge is you have to learn about what all those things are before you figure out what's a good fit for you. And I was also looking for something to do to connect to other people. So I, you know, I was a 
former uh, law clerk. And then I worked at a law firm. And ever since I had sort of joined the academy, I felt like I was not losing touch, but not as in close connection to the practice of law, which is what I teach as I wanted to be. And so like any crazy person who spent way too much time indoors with the same group of people, I decided to start a podcast. <laughs> um, and initially the best, the best way that I sort of found guests was I just announced it on Twitter. And so I think we may have had this conversation previously, Jay, but at the end of the day, right, I had built this community that I had gotten to know online of people mostly I hadn't met in person. And they were my path to finding good guests. And I had people pitching me, not just for themselves, pitching their friends. Um, I had students say, hey, I'm really interested in you know, uh, oil and gas law in Texas, which is something I know nothing about. And you know, here are three people that would be great if you could interview. And part of it was just not being afraid of getting somebody to say no. And so at first it was, yes, my friends and re referrals. Now I probably get pitched... I don't know, almost every day at this point of people who want to join. And I'd love to have everybody. I mean, this is my unpaid side hustle, so I can't have everybody, but I find whoever I can find. Um, more recently, I've been going and reaching out to some of those folks, right? So John Quinn is a great example of Quinn Emanuel, the law firm announced that they were going to a remote first work environment, which is a big announcement from a big, uh, important law firm that makes a ton of money. And I was just curious. And so I cold pitched him on LinkedIn. I figured I got enough people. What's the worst that happens? The worst that happens is they say no or they don't respond. And plenty of people do that. And so now it's a mix. And my goal is to try to get diversity of the profession, diversity of the people in the profession, people at the top of their game who've been doing it for 50 years, people who just started. And you called it eclectic. And I love that. That's the goal is to kind of build a library slowly week after week after week of asynchronous lessons from practicing lawyers. And I don't expect most people to listen to all of them. There are a couple of people who do and, you know, good on you. Um, we have those but, people too. <laughs> right. But I like, I like the idea that this library exists and you can listen to it whenever you want forever for free. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. Um, one follow-up on that. Um, so isn't it, I, I, I don't know if you have this impression or have had this experience, which is, podcasting is so interesting because there are no real visible metrics associated with it. I mean, there's the Apple, you know, chart and stuff, but nobody, right. there's not like someone's looking and saying like, oh, this person gets, you know, two likes on their LinkedIn content right. versus 500. So the, the fact that you have a podcast, like people are, are impressed by that and you can get really guess guess that you probably, you know, you're punching above your weight on, I, I we've, we found that to be the case. Like people are very oftentimes very quick to say yes. And you're like surprised by it. Oh, that was easy. Um, has that <laughs> been your experience as well? Yeah. So I'll, I'll start with the last part first, which is mm -hmm. it is a target rich environment to ask lawyers to talk about themselves, right? Like <laughs> full stop, right? Mm -hmm. That is not a hard ask to make. Very few people say no when I, when I ask. Um, in terms of the metrics, it's a really good point, right? It's not, most of the metrics are kind of private and the ones you have, as you both know, are not very granular. They're not very helpful. Um, you know, they can help give you an idea of the number of people who have sort of subscribed and are downloading every episode, but they can't mm -hmm. tell you how many people actually listen. Um, and I think that's actually great. I mean, in some ways, I think a lot of social media would be better if we just did it for the sake of doing it and not for the sake of the dopamine hit of that like or hitting a hundred or hitting a thousand. And like, I'd love to say, I don't care about those things, but I'd be lying. Um, 
the one thing I will say is I do post a lot about who listens and why they listen when I know about it. And the reason I do that is I want to be transparent about this project, right? Like there's like a meta teaching moment for me of starting a brand new project in an area that I don't really know much about, which is podcasting and showing my students and the world that like you too can find a way to speak asynchronously to the world and teach something. And I want to be transparent about that. And, you know, I think, I think I get more people along for the ride because they kind of feel like they're on the team building the podcast with me. That's how I got some great guests, friends of friends. Um, and I use the word friend now for people I've met online and that's pretty great. Yeah. I'm curious if you are doing this primarily as a hobby or does it map to some bigger picture goals? Because I'm a huge proponent of podcasting as a platform for, mm -hmm. you know, brand growth, audience growth, even business development. Um, but it could also just be a fun hobby as well. But professionally, I think it, it can often map to like, whether it's a marketing goal or a business development goal, how do you measure success? Because I'm sure it's not the vanity metrics, right? Yeah. No, it's a great, it's a great question, Tom. And, you know, for me, I started this, I, you know, I joke that it's my unpaid side hustle, but this is connected to what I do every day, right? I mean, my goal in life, and I'm lucky that I found it when I did, is to teach people to join this profession of lawyers and help them be better at it when they start it. That's my goal. That's what I do every day. That's what I do in my legal writing classroom. That's what I do at Georgetown Law. And so, you know, this is separate from my everyday task of writing legal scholarship, of teaching legal writing, but it is very much connected to my professional identity. Um, I guess I'm building a professional brand, although I'm not sure that's how I started on that process. Um, but I think now I sort of do have a niche that people come to me and ask me to talk about. And I love that because it helps connect me to the right people. So it's absolutely connected to my professional life, but it is adjacent to it. Um, and so that's kind of how I've thought about it. And I'll say, you know, I didn't really know when I started what, how, where exactly it was going to go, but I had confidence that it would be beneficial to both me as a human being and me as a, as a law professor and me as a lawyer. And as a result, I was willing to see where that took me. And it's still sort of figuring it out along the way. Um, and it's the greatest thing I've done in the last two years, 100%, both professionally and personally, it has made me grow and it has helped uh, countless people who have you know, emailed me and said, hey, I'm a law student in Morocco and I just listened to this episode and I now feel confident enough to take my exams to become a real lawyer. I mean, that's incredible. How else would I be able to have that effect? Um, and so for me, it's, it's not a, I wouldn't call it a hobby. I, it's connected to my professional life and my professional interests, but I don't think in the 21st century that we have to choose sort of those hard boundaries between your professional life and your sort of personal leisure life. I, I'm kind of trying to have this sit at, at various times. It sits on either side of the line, but sit on the line of my professional life and my personal interests. Yeah. Last quick question, Jay, for me on the podcasting topic is podcasting is an interesting vehicle because on the one hand, it's easy to um, dismiss and make fun of like, oh, God, does the world really need another podcast? Sure. Or why does this person think he has a podcast that needs to be out into the world? Um, but on the other hand, so few people actually really do it. And I've often said, you know, you wouldn't not build a company website because your competitor did, right? And it's, it's just, I don't know why podcasting gets so dismissed as a communications platform where it's every bit and maybe more effective than static 
thought leadership and static mm-hmm. marketing because of the the relation you just talked about relationships that you formed and lives that you've impacted and i don't know how many blog posts do that so what's your take on oh god does the world really need another podcast yeah i think i didn't even know enough when i started of the bad rap of podcasts because i wasn't a huge podcast consumer mm-hmm. um I will tell you, I have found podcasting to be a real sweet spot. Um, most of my, I mean, I teach writing for a living. So writing is sort of my bread and butter. And I really didn't want a creative outlet that was in the written word because, you know, going back to your last question of your personal life and your professional life, I do enough writing in my professional life that I wanted another path. I actually took a class um sort of that fall about how to start a YouTube channel. So I thought I might do that, but I really hated editing video. Mm -hmm. Um, And so podcasting for me works really well because I can highlight other people's stories because I do a sort of interview style podcast. And I sort of was thinking, right? Like, how do you learn about professions? You sit and have coffee and ask somebody, well, what do you do and how'd you get there? The cool part about podcasting is it doesn't take that much technology. It takes almost no money and other people can listen in. And if people don't want to listen in, great, that's fine, right? Like, you know, that's the cool world. The denominator of potential listeners in the 21st century is basically unlimited. Mm -hmm. And so if a hundred people or a thousand people or someday 10,000 people want to listen, that's great. But I gained something just from having the conversation and letting other people kind of listen in. Yeah, it's cool. And I mean, I know I, I probably have a bias towards it. I just, cause I'm such a consumer of audio content that I, I love it. And I, I agree. I, I think more people should have podcasts, but, um, and it's, you know, it, I think part of it's the, you know, the, the, they think there's a big learning curve from a technology standpoint, but it's, it's pretty easy these days, especially since just Tom handles all that stuff for us. Yeah. Get a good co-host who knows that stuff. Um, all right. I want to shift gears a little bit, uh, but I want to talk about, you mentioned that you sort of launched your podcast on Twitter. So Jonah, we became familiar with one another through LinkedIn because that's where I'm spending all my time. Um, We we had this conversation, Tom and I did in another context with another group yesterday, sort of having a Twitter uh, v LinkedIn conversation. Um, And I have, you know, like many people, I have a Twitter account. I just, the only thing I do with it is if I publish an article somewhere and that publication tweets out the article, I retweet it. Like I don't do anything, but Mm -hmm. recently I've become much more observant and interested in Twitter as a platform, just sort of watching. Cause I think there's a lot of, I think people who write on LinkedIn can learn a lot from people who write on Twitter. And I'm not sure the opposite necessarily is true. So, um, talk to us. It seems like maybe you were first to Twitter, at least Mm -hmm. in terms of sharing, creating content, um, and more recent to LinkedIn. So just tell us a little bit about your, um, I guess, perceptions, um, insights into the two platforms. Yeah. It's, it's such a funny conversation to be having because I, I left the law firm, uh, in 2018 and became a professor at my alma mater at Georgetown. And I had been on Twitter for several years before that, but in total voyeur status. So I was totally a read only contributor. I did not tweet anything, but Part of the reason I found the job that I did was because of Twitter. And the reason I say that is there's a lot of people who are in the sort of legal writing community, both practitioners and uh, academics, who spend a lot of time on Twitter. Uh, There's a hashtag where people tend to hang out, uh, which is appellate, hashtag appellate Twitter. Um, And I saw Sounds like a party. Yeah, you know, it is. It is. It is. Let me tell you. Let me, we, we throw some ragers. No, I'm just joking. Um, but 
I saw these people talking about, you know, writing as a, as a discipline in the law. And I just was like, yes, this is what I care about. And like, we all have our own nerdy interest. Mm -hmm. And I found my corner and I saw all these people who had five and 10 and 20,000 followers. And they're literally like fighting over how a judge wrote an opinion, not for the content, but for the style. And I was like, look, I found my people. This is great. (laughs) And then I realized, oh man, I might be able to do this as a profession, right? So I saw all these people who were talking about their path, who were a couple of years ahead of me. And I always think those are the best people to find, not the people who are 30 years ahead of you, but the people who are just a smidge ahead of you. And you see their path and you're like, huh, I'm doing what they did five years ago, but what they're doing now sounds even more interesting. So how can I sort of work backwards to try to make that happen? So that's why I started on Twitter. Once I then sort of moved away from the firm, there's there's a hesitance for some lawyers, particularly young lawyers, to be on social media saying things because there are many firms that are not sort of excited about that. Um, I don't know if my old firm would have been or not, um, but I didn't, I never asked. And once I became an academic, I started tweeting and I didn't just tweet about the law. I also tweeted about, you know, my family and my interests. And I sort of was able to have that kind of well-rounded piece to it. And I then tried a thread, right? And I know you said that maybe like Mm -hmm. LinkedIn can learn from Twitter. I absolutely think people who have primarily been on Twitter can learn from LinkedIn. Um, Writing slightly longer form content on Twitter has been a real uh, game changer for the way I think about the world. And I started writing threads about different things that were interesting interesting to me, uh, mostly professional, and started getting a little bit of a following. And then you kind of have the back and forth in the in the tweet threads um, or in the replies. And then ultimately you start making friends. I mean, it's really amazing. I mean, sometimes my wife is not a huge Twitter fan. She's certainly not a huge fan of me being on Twitter all the time, (laughs) but you know, I'll say, oh, my friend told me that. And she's like, is this a friend that I know? Is this a friend that you've ever met in person? (laughs) And it's like, Mm. it doesn't really matter. Um, And then we have this crazy pandemic where we're all stuck in our houses and I'm still communicating on a professional level. Like I'm going to a conference and meeting people, but I'm also communicating pe- with people who have a lot of similarities to me. I have two young kids and they have two long- young kids. I'm in a two working parent family. They're in a two working parent family. And so they have similarities to me that people who live next door don't. And I found those people on Twitter and that's sort of how I sort of found my space there. And because I had that small audience, but a big enough audience that when I launched a project, I wasn't launching it to emptiness. I was launching it to people who were interested and who said, look, I like his tweets. I'm probably going to like his podcast. And so it allowed me to start this project, which as I said, has been the an absolute game changer for my life. The thing about Twitter that I is a dual edged sword for me is that it's completely open, not open source, but you know what I mean? It's like, there's not this, um, expectation that there's going to be a mutual I follow you, you follow me, or connection, mm-hmm. like you might get on Facebook or LinkedIn. I know you can follow people on those platforms, but the norm is really to connect with somebody, right? And with Twitter, you really have access to everyone, which means good and bad, because a piece of content that you put out or that you discover could connect you to a stranger instantaneously mm-hmm. without any sort of like, well, let's see if they follow me back or anything. And you're immediately having a conversation. And that's how things blow up on Twitter. And again, there's 
good and bad in that. So I'm curious, how does your strategy change then in a more closed environment Mm -hmm. and maybe what's supposed to be a more professional environment, like say on LinkedIn? Yeah, I will say, you know, a lot of people say similar challenges to the one you have about Twitter. And a lot of people don't curate what they see on Twitter. So like, I don't follow any general news sources. I don't follow any political commentators, not because I'm not interested in politics, but that's not how I get my news. And so for me, it's kind of like an open forum of people that I'm regularly interacting with. And people can sort of follow me and listen in. I can follow people. The cool part about Twitter is you're, you can be part of multiple niches at the same time. So you can be a DC sports fan niche and have the DC sports fans that you want to hang out with. You can be uh, the legal writing folks. You know, there's really interesting sort of subgroups uh, of lawyers who hang out on Twitter and they don't always connect. Um, so that's why it's better than something like a Reddit, right? That's sort of super closed. Um, the challenge for me with LinkedIn is getting the con. I still haven't figured out the formula for getting content that people want to react to and engage with. The the cool part about writing on Twitter, especially as sort of a budding academic, is it lets me workshop ideas. Like I trade in ideas, right? I'm going to write long academic articles that take a year to write. And I've just decided that I'm going to start tweeting those ideas and the articles I read and the concepts I think about all the time and see what resonates. And sometimes people will say, I, this just happened to me. I'm writing an article right now about the concept of empathy in judicial opinion writing. And somebody, I, I said, anybody have good examples of courts that have rules related to how courts should write their opinions? And I had lawyers from all over the country sending me examples from their local courts that I would not have been able to find at all. And I have not had one big, crazy Twitter fight in my three years of being active on the platform. Uh, You're doing it wrong. (laughs) Right. (laughs) No, and that's the last thing I want to say, because people love, people think they're going to gain following or connection by being contrarian and being short with people. I use Twitter as a platform to raise people up. I try not to use it. I'm not perfect, but I really try to use it not to use it as a place to complain, right? It is to me a professional space where I want to lift people up. And I don't care whether you're a first year law student or you're the, you know, the Supreme Court justice of the state of Michigan. I want to lift up the good things you're doing. And I hope that if I do good things, you'll lift me up too. And it does work. LinkedIn to me is because of that closed network. I'm, I haven't figured out like how do new people see you, right? Mm-hmm. Twitter's easy for that, right? The algorithm shows you people all the time. I, I don't really always know sort of how people are going to see you or who's going to see it or how to build that mutual following. And I've only started like experimenting and candidly, I'm mostly posting content I first post on Twitter that I think might resonate with a different group on LinkedIn. Um, And now I'm trying to sort of serve the podcast to people on LinkedIn because I'm actually finding that there are a lot of people interested in the content of the podcast that don't use Twitter and would have no other way of finding it except through LinkedIn. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, it's hard. I I don't know. I mean, I feel like I feel like I've it's taken a while, but, you know, I've got a relative sense of like what works on LinkedIn now, you know, but if I went on Twitter right now, I think I would you know, I'd be falling flat on my face. And, and I would also probably have, 
you know, because LinkedIn is tends to be a very like friendly environment. I don't know. I, I see because I've looked at other lawyers and people like me who post the kinds of things that I write. Um, and there is a lot more snark in the replies and stuff on, on Twitter. Mm-hmm. You just have to, I think you just have to ignore that. And I, and I think I, I could, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just in watching mode right now, but at some point I might pop up and start sharing some things. Yeah. I mean, look, this is what I teach my first year writing students, right? It's all about the genre and what do you need mm-hmm. to know in a new genre of communication? You need to know what's your purpose and who's your audience, right? Yep. And when you say like, I know my, I know what I'm doing on LinkedIn, that tells me, you know, your purpose and you know, your audience I've read your Mm -hmm. stuff, Jay. And I have thought some of the same things that you think, but you portray them in such a clear way that just fits that genre perfectly. And it's totally possible on Twitter. It's just, you just have to like, listen and see what you like. And again, if someone like use the mute button liberally, if somebody (laughs) isn't right. being a good citizen or you don't want to talk with them, then you don't have to like, yeah. don't have a fight with them with some random person instead <laughs> use it as a place to like build people up. I take yeah, back what sure. I said about you doing it wrong. Then if you got the mute button <laughs> mastered, then you know what you're doing on Twitter. I take it back. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, Jonah mate, perhaps the last, uh, area of inquiry. So I have, uh, I, I have this, I think it's not unique, but I certainly try to, when I'm creating a piece of content, you know, think of one specific person, have someone in mind, uh, mm-hmm. who, who, you know, I'm writing for. And so with this question, I have a, I have a friend in mind. Um, and I don't think he's unique. I think there's many lawyers, especially I've had more conversations now where I think people are burned out. Um, it's been a good run. People have made a lot of money. Like there are some in- instances where people are looking for some sort of transition and professor, uh, law school professor is one of those things that I think intrigue so many people, but it seems like a bit of a black box for many, right? How do you even go about it? So um, the friend I have in mind has done a little bit of adjunct work, right? Um, and, and, but lacks like maybe you have, you have an impressive background that seems to me like tailor-made for where you got to Williams and Connolly, super prestigious firm, um, you know, clerkship with the DC district court, second court, uh, second circuit court of appeals, you know, back to Williams and Connolly. And then you landed at Georgetown. If correct me, if I got that wrong, no, but you got it right. Thanks. I'm curious as to whether, you know, if you were talking to someone who, you know, maybe has, has good credentials, right. Um, you know, did one well law school, uh, has had good jobs, practice of law, maybe has done a little bit associated with law school, like taught a, like a seminar or something like that. Is, is there a path for that person? Uh, and if so, what would it be? And if not, maybe we just, we just crush their dreams right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, as I just told you, I lift people up, don't crush dreams. Um, so I won't say that. Um, I will say that it's not just a black box, um, but legal, like the legal Academy is incredibly hard to break into for, for a very specific reason, right? Unlike all other universe or l- unlike many other university professors, you can teach in a law school with the terminal degree of a law degree, right? We, most right. people, many do, but not all have PhDs. Um, I will say, and look, I'm not even a traditional law professor in the sense that I don't teach your sort of black letter legal classes from a podium. I'm teaching a practice-based class where I was hired primarily because of my practice-based experience. Um, the biggest sort of the, the, the coin of the realm, I think is the phrase for, for law mm-hmm. professors is academic writing in law journals. And so in order to sort of go the more traditional path, 
you really need to have written. I mean, it's not like the it's not like the old days where you could sort of say, oh, I'm going to go be a Harvard law professor and I'll write my first article when I get there. Like, that's right. not the way it works. Like in so many professions, we now expect people to have incredible credentials before they come. And so the best way to do that, and people do, is through academic writing. The challenge is, if you have a full-time job, when are you going to find time to do a 70-page, highly footnoted uh, academic piece of writing? So it's not impossible. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that is sort of the path to becoming a law presser is writing. And then if you do what I do, it's sort of going to the schools that are looking to hire in this particular area. Same is true for clinicians, right? People who teach at clinics, they want experience and you have to write. Otherwise you have to go through, um, there's a process, you know, colloquially termed the meat market. You put in your materials and people bring you in and you talk about your scholarly paper, but it really is not you know, it's different than sort of the traditional PhD teaching a college classroom route, but it's, it's adjacent to it or similar to it. Um, and so to do it full-time, it's a challenge. You need to have incredible geographic flexibility um, and you just need to write. And not a lot of people have either or both of those things when they decide they want to do this. Adjuncting allows you, as you sort of pointed out, to have the both the best of both worlds and maybe the challenges of both worlds. It allows you to teach without doing any academic writing and allows you to sort of talk about your niche, your expertise, your piece of the legal practice puzzle for law students. And so I strongly recommend people who want to teach go that adjunct route. Many law schools across the country use adjuncts. I encourage my students to take classes with adjuncts. I think they provide a really unique perspective. Um, but becoming a full-time, I'm going to teach torts and do the Socratic method law professor is a very challenging path. And it is a path that really is about writing. That's the path. Yeah. Interesting. I Tom, have, did uh, you have anything? Yeah. I was just going to, since we're going to wrap up here, just a quick sure. fun little quiz at the end of the episode here. Uh, I'll start with Jay because I'm always impressed with Jay's ability and his instant recall to pull up famous quotes or even arcane quotes and, and know exactly who to attribute them to. So, Jonah, you mentioned that you're very blessed because you found out your purpose in life at a young age, which reminds me of my favorite quote, one of my favorite quotes, the two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you found out why. Hmm. Jay, who said that? Yeah, um, that's a very old quote. Uh, Shoot, I've I've cited that quote before, but and I usually just make stuff up. But there's too many, you know, <laughs> like I'm famous for that. Like if there's no immediate fact checking available, I would just make it up and I would say something like that was Abraham Lincoln or Benjamin Franklin. But I don't remember. I but I do know the quote. So sorry, Tom. I I failed okay. your quiz. Jonah, do you know? I have no idea. I was gonna. I was gonna say some politician. I was gonna think Abe Lincoln or FDR or someone in that in that yeah, genre. It, this is this, but this we we we're going back to like Greek or Roman uh, times, aren't we, Tom? Or am I way off base? Well, so it is a bit of a tr trick question. It's often okay. attributed to Mark Twain, and that's why I attribute it to. But oh, there's some conjecture that Mark Twain borrowed it from somebody else. So okay, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the problem with all quotes. I mean, there are so it's so funny to go down the rabbit hole and and identify yeah. ones that just like are are completely made up. Most of them are. Well, it's like they're <laughs> oftentimes they're translating from you know different languages, and then they get twisted. And everyone says the same thing over and over anyway. The, but there's right. some famous. Well, the, I mean the the Mark Twain. You know, there's the I would have written a, a a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. Like that's 
there's so yeah that's uh, Bla- uh pascal was originally said that but it always gets attributed everything gets attributed to mark twain or yeah, yeah, right, Franklin, right. Or that's, Socrates. Actually, <laughs> that's actually a quote i use in my um in my legal writing class when we talk about conciseness right if i had more time yeah. i would have written a shorter letter and yeah. i do show uh blaze pascal also thomas jefferson also was somebody yeah. who famously said it um and then there's the dr <laughs> seuss version of that quote which I'm going to totally butcher, but it's basically something like it rhymes, right? All the things that you write need to be that you light, right? I mean, it's everybody mm-hmm. sort of then takes the quote and makes it their own. I'm going to, I have to yep. find the uh, Dr. Seuss version because it's really good. Yeah, no, it's hilarious, isn't it? When you see um, people say the most like, you know, just mundane things, but they're famous and how they get like, you know, the qu- they quote against a, a mountain backdrop and it's like uh, as if it's some profound thing, but it's been said <laughs> 6,000 times, but you know, it's pretty crazy. We well, got to do an episode we, on that sometime, Tom. I was going to say, before we move into Instagram territory, which is totally foreign to either one of us, maybe we uh, should shut this episode <laughs> down and, and thank Jonah for his time. Yeah, I appreciate absolutely. it. Th- thanks guys for, uh, for having me on and for all the work you do and, and uh, sort of putting, putting great thought leadership out into the world. Uh, for ears that want to listen. Well, thanks, Jonah. And uh, we'll see you on LinkedIn. And I may be, uh, I may be lurking in a voyeur on Twitter of your, uh, of your <laughs> tweets now. All right. So have a good weekend and thanks everybody for listening. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.